The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 20th chapter. Then some Sadducees, who say that people will not rise from death, came to Jesus and said, Teacher, if a man dies and leaves a wife but no children, that man's brother must marry the widow so they can have children who will be considered the dead man's children. Well, once there were seven brothers, and the oldest got married and died without having children. Then the second one married the woman, and then the third. The same thing happened to all seven. They died all without having children. Last of all, the woman died. Now on the day when the dead rise to life, whose wife will she be? All seven of them had married her. Jesus answered them, The men and the women of this age marry, but the men and women who are worthy to rise from death and live in the age to come will not marry. They will be like the angels and cannot die. They are the children of God because they have risen from death. And Moses clearly proves that the dead are raised to life In the passage about the burning bush, Abraham speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is the God of the living, not of the dead, for to God all are alive. The Gospel of the Lord. Invite the congregation to be seated. So I want to start out by disappointing you. There's no clean resolution to this sermon. This sermon leaves us with questions. And, and I think that's kind of appropriate, seeing as the Sadducees were really trying to ask Jesus something that was a gotcha question. You know, first we start off with this really weird idea of biblical marriage, in which if a man dies and his wife is childless, and both, I guess both of them would be at that point, right? Then, then all of a sudden the man's brother has to marry the woman. Lauren, would that be okay with you? Okay, so, so my wife is not on board with this biblical marriage system. You know, and, and then, you know, if you move on and on. And so the, the Sadducees ask this ridiculous question because they, they do not believe that the dead will be resurrected. And I think there's a, there's a fine point here that, that really needs to be made, that this passage in Scripture is very certainly a part of a larger conversation in the culture and context of of the times in which Jesus lives. You know, if you think about the context of the church right now, if I were, were to say to you, well, I'm Christian, you know, there's, there's, a, in a piece, there's a piece in our culture in the United States that might tell you something, but that might not tell you what I mean by the fact that I'm Christian. You know, if I were to say to somebody who lives somewhere else, I'm Christian, you know, we think about some of the earliest places where the church exists, like in Ethiopia. You know, to say it to an Ethiopian Orthodox person that I'm Christian, it means something different to them in some key ways. Not that they don't believe in Jesus, but following Jesus and living the life of a Christian involves different things than it does to be a Lutheran in Lutheran Church of Our Redeemer. You know, you think about our our Greek Orthodox siblings in Christ, and if you walk into one of their sanctuaries, you don't see any pews because they stand up for the entire two or three hour service. We could try that if you really want to. They, they also have icons all over the place. And the icons, they say they've written them. And, and they write the icons because those icons tell the story of faith. They, they talk about how they understand the faith that is handed down generation to generation through the saints that they pray through. You know, and so you'll see, you know, and, and the, actually Greek Orthodox saints, and this is completely off script, but Greek, they, they have this kind of 
real fascination with the ways in which belief in God not only transforms our hearts, but can actually reverse the effects of the fall. And so you'll have these saints like St. John of so-and-so, whose uncorrupted hand still resides in a crypt somewhere. Yeah, so, you know, that's worthwhile, right? And so being, but if, if they were to say to you, I'm Christian, you might see that particular thing and say, huh? So it's the same way in, in the Jewish tradition. In every world religion, there are groups and sects and all kinds of things that, that they divide themselves into different ways of understanding. The Sadducees were the same way. Now, they were not annihilationists. They didn't believe that when you die, that's it. <laughs> They, they just believed that, you know, I, I've joked a couple times about, you know, the Southern gospel tradition, and we have that, the hymn, Some Glad Morning, where, when this life is over, I'll fly away, and we're all in a cloud with Jesus playing a harp. You know, that's, that's more along the lines of what the Sadducees believed, because the Sadducees were part of, of the Greek culture section of Judaism at the time. And the Greeks had a strong belief that flesh is bad, spirit is good, so if through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit through the waters of baptism and all of the things that we do to live a good life, you know, it must mean that we throw away this evil flesh and then take on this spiritual being. And it's true that wherever two or more are gathered in the name of Jesus, you have the church. You also probably have about three opinions between those two people, right? And, and so not only do you have the church, but you also have conflict, that's why, of course, we have the creeds, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed and the Athanasian Creed, which we never read hardly. But they have them because there was this real argument among people that they were trying to figure out what does it really mean to be Christian at the baseline. When, when we say that we're Christian, what does it mean? And so because this was not only being contentious within the walls of the church, but this was contentious in general society in Rome, and the emperor decided that he couldn't just have people arguing in the streets. And, you know, people like St. Nicholas, who liked to punch heretics in the face, well, he was the one who decided whether they were heretics, and so other people might not consider them to be, right? Well, th so the, the emperor told the church that they had to convene a council in Nicaea. You know, oh, yeah, Nicene Creed, I get it now, right? And, and decide, what does it mean to be Christian? And so we have the three articles, you know, I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, and then the really short one, I believe in the Holy Spirit, because nobody knows what to do with that one. And then these other articles that we say, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we believe in the communion of saints, we believe in the forgiveness of sins, we believe in the resurrection of the body. And so hearing what the Sadducees were asking about, who didn't believe in the resurrection, who are asking Jesus this gotcha question about, you know, well, if this woman is married seven times to seven people, none of whom she has children with, you know, that's, that's a covenant that they've made. Which one does she belong to? And so in some ways, Jesus gives a really pastoral answer, which is, you know, kind of the Jesus equivalent of, why are you bugging me with this? You know, nobody belongs to anybody in the resurrection. And in some ways, I hear this as, uh, you know, why should we write, light the right candle? And some members of Altar Guild will give you these long, theological, deep, and complex answers of why the right candle is the candle that Jesus and the disciples lit at the Last Supper. And, you know, it, but really, probably what happened is there was in a congregation one Sunday an acolyte who needed to be trained and was feeling a little indecisive. And somebody said, well, light the right one first. And then we developed a theology around that. That happens a lot in the church. And, 
Though I, I think Jesus has better access to things than what I do. And so I do think that in Jesus' answer isn't just that tongue-in-cheek, kind of go away, could you bother me? But it, it is a way of beginning to understand that there is something different about what comes after than what came before. Now, you know, I, and there's, there's lots of ways of thinking about this. And as long as there has been church, people have argued about this. And this is why I'm telling you it's unsatisfying, is because my official answer is, I don't know, that's up to God. I, I embrace mystery and the sovereignty of God and the fact that it's above my pay grade, because when I start to speak about much more than that, other than the fact that I sincerely have always believed that God is faithful in promises, and if God makes a promise, then God is keeping that. I might not understand what keeping it looks like, but I can understand faithfulness, right? And so even though the nuts and bolts of it we may not understand, and so in that way, in a a culture that is just obsessed with getting answers, it's unsatisfying. There is a a deeper satisfaction that comes from embracing mystery and being willing to let things go that we have no possibility of knowing, trusting that God is faithful. And so there have always been these arguments in this tug-of-war back and forth, and you notice I don't have pictures. The only picture that came to mind is I I saw this image in my head of one woman doing tug of war against her seven former husbands, and I didn't think that would translate very well to pictures. (laughs) And, but you know, what what is the resurrection from the dead? Well, we, we can say that part of what it means to be Christian is to believe in a resurrection of the body. And even within that, believing that somehow this body, this flesh that we inhabit, This world, you know, in Revelation, it talks about the new heaven and the new earth descending upon the new Jerusalem. It's interesting to see that the ultimate vision of the coming of the fullness of the kingdom of God is not out there somewhere, but it is God finally coming to establish a kingdom here that lasts forever. And it tells me that part of the reason we believe in the resurrection of the body is because this body is not just something. This body means something. And Isn't it comforting in those moments of of grief and sorrow and worry and wonder and doubt and trouble to know that all of this isn't meaningless? And and the other piece that I always am curious about is, you know, what do I look like when I'm resurrected? If I live to be 80, will I look like 80-year-old Eric? I don't know. Maybe I'll look good. I might hope so. But it sure would be more fun to look like 23-year-old Eric, right? You know, or 42. 42 is not bad. I'd be okay looking like this. You know, maybe, maybe I'd be in better shape in my resurrected body. But the other piece of that is that we look at the resurrected body of Jesus. And even though we, we know from the appearances of Jesus in the garden where the disciples and Mary see him and don't really recognize him until he walks up to Mary who's, who's preparing to prepare him. And, and finally, when he speaks to her, he recognizes her or she recognizes him. Or we we think about the disciples on the road to Emmaus where Jesus has been walking and talking and and opening up the scriptures to them which caused their hearts to burn within them. And it wasn't until Jesus broke the bread that finally they were able to see who he is. You know, there's something that's fundamentally maybe changed about it. We also know that Jesus maintains the holes in his hands. Jesus maintains his wounds. So there's something that carries forward too. The reason I think this becomes so important for us is in a, in a world where 
you know, there are so many different opinions about so many different things. And in a world where it seems like, you know, we, we just thrive and feed on the conflict in our culture right now. You know, you, you can't even open a web browser without, without seeing something tell us about why we should be angry about something. You know, it's just, and that's fine. I can be angry about a lot of things. I can play that game. But, you know, we also in the church struggle with this too, not just because of culture, but because being the church in a world that's like this, and when I say like this, that's a little bit misleading because we assume, and I think every generation says this, you know, that, oh, you know, my generation was bad, but these kids these days, you know, they have the iPads and they, but, you know, you go back 2,000 years and you see someone, I think it was Plato maybe, who they found something that he had written and he had talked about how all these kids have scrolls and charcoal and all they're doing is writing in there and nobody's ever going to talk to each other anymore. So, so this isn't new. This is something that's always been happening, that the, the older generation is suspicious of the younger generation. And, you know, we, we have this kind of idea that everything's completely going downhill and it's easy to get caught up in that, but in the church, we have a different narrative. In the church, we don't believe that things are getting worse. We believe that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, things are getting better, that we're moving closer to the kingdom of God, that we're not on the downhill slope, but we're on the uphill climb because our struggle and our suffering is not done in vain, because it leads us toward the goal that God has set for us, which is somehow union together with God in the presence of God's kingdom where we have been told we will reside, whatever that means. And so even though we might not have the answers about what it really looks like, it, it does give us a space where we can be and find some comfort knowing that even though we don't understand all of it, we can rest in the assurance that God is faithful. That through the waters of baptism, God has promised that God is with us. And through the meal of communion, God has promised that God is in us and works through us. And together we are joined with the whole church, past, present, future, where whatever our resurrection bodies might look like, we know that where God is, life is the rule, and everything begins to change. Even the dead can't stay still. And we also know that our woundedness matters, and part of the way that God loves us is by not erasing those things about us that make us who we are. Because that's not what love does. Love doesn't erase the parts of us that aren't nice. Love seeks a way to love that all of us because our, our scars are part of our identity. Our problems are a part of who we are. Our woundedness is part of what makes us the people that our loved ones love, even though it makes us challenging sometimes. As, uh, as we go out from this place today, and you know, you, you ponder this mystery, and I, I'd like to encourage you to do this this week. What are, the, what are the places in our faith that just kind of rub against the grain for us? You know, what are the, you could even use the creed as a, as a guide for this. And I've, I've done this with confirmation students a few times where I say, okay, this week we're gonna talk about the first article of the creed. And I know all of you are saying along with me in your heads, yeah, I believe in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth, right? And, and you're absolutely right. That is the first article of the creed. Well, what does it mean to me that God is my father? What does it, what does it mean to me that God is creating heaven and earth? 
What are the places where my heart leaps for joy and what are the places where I scratch my head? Because the fact of the matter is, if we're any place where there's never any conflict, where there's never any disagreement, it's mostly because we don't care enough about what we're doing to invest ourselves enough to have an opinion about it. And it makes a difference when we invest ourselves in our faith. Not just because some glad morning when this life is over, we hope to float with Jesus on a cloud somewhere, or you know, because we have, we have this sure and certain hope in the resurrection, whatever that looks like. But because the fact that we believe in a resurrection changes our idea of what this life means. This life is not just something we pass through to get to the other side, but this life is something that has value. This life is something that has meaning. This life is something in which even though heaven and earth may pass away, the things that we do have meaning because they change the world around us and we join God in that holy act of creation by affecting the lives and the world in which we live. And that is holy too. Everything we do is sacred. So embrace that and engage that and wrestle with that this week so that when you run into those hard spaces where you just don't know what to do, you've, you've already entered into that space with an open heart that hears the call of the God who calls us to the font and to the table and welcomes all and names us beloved. And we, we can rest in the assurance that even though we don't have the answers, we have a little bit of certainty. Amen.